Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Thinking with Opera podcast, produced by the DARE partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds. I'm Frank Finlay, Professor of German Language and Literature at the University, and for this second instalment in our trilogy of podcasts on Richard Wagner's final opera, Parsifal, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by two eminent Wagnerians to focus on issues of gender, sexuality and ritual in Parsifal, and, more broadly, in the context of the composer's work as a whole. Joining us from the United States... Alex Ross has been the widely acclaimed music critic of The New Yorker since 1996. His first book, the 2007 international bestseller The Rest is Noise, was a magisterial weaving together of the histories of the 20th century and its music. The book won both a National Book Critics Circle Award and the Guardian First Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Following the brilliantly illuminating 2011 collection of essays and interviews, Listen to This, Alex gave us Wagnerism, Art and History in the Shadow of Music in 2020. He called it, and I quote, The Great Education of My Life, a 750-page opus that surveys the composer's influence on art, politics and culture over the course of the last century and a half. The New York Times Book Review hailed it as a work of enormous intellectual range and subtle artistic judgment. And the Wall Street Journal called it an indispensable work of cultural history. Dr. Anya Scheel is reader and head of the music department at the University of York. Anya studied music and German at Trinity College Dublin and historical musicology at King's College London. Her PhD thesis was on the performance and reception of Wagner's Meistersinger von Nuremberg during the Weimar Republic. Anya has published widely on her academic specialisms, which include not only Wagner, music and gender, but also the staging of opera. Alex and Anya, welcome. We're going to be honing in on Parsifal in particular, but I'd like to start us off with a a broader question. Anya, I wonder to what extent, particularly in his depiction of women, that Wagner is very much of his time. Yes, thanks, Frank. Um, So Parsifal was first performed in 1882, but it had a 37-year genesis. So you could say it's the product of the second half of the 19th century and very much the product of um, the second half of the 19th century in Germany. And, um, you know, this was a time, it's called in German the Gründerzeit, it was a time of industrialization was a time when Germany was moving towards unification, which happened in 1871. And and it was also a time that was interesting, I suppose, in relation to men and women and how they related to each other, and in particular to Wagner and his approaches to writing female characters and, and in particular some of the representations of women in Parsifal. So Parsifal is really an interesting one from a female perspective. You have really just one central female character, Kondri, who is, in some senses, a very central character because you have to say that the plot mechanism, the central plot mechanism, revolves around her, which is to say that Parsifal becomes enlightened. The central character of Parsifal, and I know that this podcast is part of a series and I don't have to really go into the whole plot because um, I'm sure everyone listening will will know the plot of Parsifal but we know that Parsifal has to move 
from a state of being foolish to a state of being enlightened. And, and he moves through this, through contact with Kondri. So Kondri is actually really literally central to the plot and her moment comes in act two, right in the center of the opera. And yet in act three, she's almost silent for the whole act. She is silenced. And I think in Kondri, we get this sense of Wagner collecting a number of stereotypes together in one character. She was supposed to be two characters at the start. She was supposed to be a messenger of the grail and she was supposed to be this fantastically attractive woman who was going to uh, seduce Parsifal and, and wreck his progress towards righting all the wrongs of, of the Brotherhood of the Grail and Monsalvat. And Wagner decided during this 37-year um, genesis of the opera that he would actually combine these two figures into one. So we, what we get in Kondry is a collection of stereotypes of the other, in a sense. And I think what we have to remember about this time in which he was writing was that women were, were regarded as other to the masculine kind of role model. And definitely in Germany at the time that Wagner was writing, society was essentially a masculine thing and, and women were other and women were often regarded as quite hysterical and we see that coming through in, in Kondry's character. She, she has a kind of hysteria. She's also related to the mad women of opera. So she, she really sort of harks back to a whole tradition in opera. And she is a Jewish woman, so she, she's other in that sense as well. She relates to Orientalism because she's described as, at one stage, being dressed in robes of Arabian attire. She, she passes through Arabia, she comes back. She's associated with exoticism, with distance. So she's everything that the bourgeois male is not. And I think we can see echoes of the time in this character where you get this collection of characteristics that are other to the masculine ideal that was there in these times in Germany. I guess one thing that interested, well, one of the many things that interested me about Kundry is while she's absolutely key to the whole kind of narrative structure and, and the plot, etc., the, the opera almost consumes her. So it's by the end, particularly in, in, in Act 3, where she is pretty much a, a mute figure. She has just one word, which is she repeats twice, Dean and yeah. to, to serve and the like, and it, it is devoid of any function, other, I guess, as someone who is, is symbolic of a biblical figure of Mary Magdalene. We have all these kind of scenes of washing the feet and the like, but she's used up and almost discarded by the actual opera itself. Yes, exactly. And I think that's a very important part of the plot, that the opera restores this kind of um, idea of male integrity and the brotherhood being whole and having ejected this foreign element. And so country is needed, but she does get used up and and she is silenced. And, and we see this progress, but it's quite an interesting progress because whereas... She's presented to us in, in Act One as a wild woman, and we're told that she has quite a sort of dark complexion marking her out as other in, in a racial sense as well as everything else. We're told that she has wild piercing eyes, so she has a kind of phallic quality that, um, that can destroy men who get trapped by her and who get trapped by her seductions. 
So she passes through Act 2, she attempts to seduce Parsifal, she fails. And in failing to seduce Parsifal, she loses that power that she has. And we see her in Act 3, she's described as having become paler, having become less wild. She is effectively domesticated. There's a description of her going to work as if she were a serving maid. So she's domesticated. And that's why she, she says these two words, dienen, dienen, which means to serve, to serve. And those are the final two words she says. And so she's reduced to this kind of domesticated serving woman at the end and she's silenced and she dies at the end. Now, of course, contemporary productions are often really uncomfortable with this and they will decide to have her live on at the end. And, um, you know, that's that's a very common ploy by present day stage directors to have the woman live on. And, and you know, clearly in productions that are staged these days, there are many ways to turn around this figure and to make her less domesticated by the end or less wild to start with. So how she comes across is, is very much, can be directed in, in various ways by the stage director and can also be a product of the interpretation. So one thing that we should remember here is this whole debate about how female singers come across on stage. And, you know, there's a quite famous musicologist called Carolyn Abate who has argued that the attraction or the power of the female voice on the operatic stage is such that the female character, even if she is going to be discarded at the end, even if she is going to die, somehow attains a kind of authority of her own through the majesty of the voice and through the performativity. Now, of course, there are other musicologists who argue otherwise. And, you know, this famous French theorist called Catherine Clément, who's written about uh, women in opera. And of course, she would point to the story, which eliminates country. Um, but there are these kinds of tensions that we need to bear in mind. And, and there are some contradictions in, in country's character as well. She's described as being animalistic, but we also know that the animals are holy or regarded as a sacred in this opera. So somehow she's nonetheless in touch with the sacred. She, she longs for redemption, but she also longs for Parsifal. She wants just one hour, she says, just one hour with Parsifal in a kind of um, echo of Isolde, in Tristan and Isolde. Nur eine Stunde, just one hour. So, there are all sorts of contradictions in this character, I think, um, but she is she is certainly silenced by the end. So, so picking up that central kind of notion of, of contradiction, Alex, in, in, in your book, you write of Parsifal as an opera that prizes chastity in an in eroticised atmosphere. And I was wondering if you kind of like to elaborate a little bit on that, and perhaps in, in connection with what we've just, we've just heard from Anya. 
Yes, well, Anya has sort of, I think, laid out uh, some of the of the contradictions of, of this opera uh, beautifully, uh, I think, not only the opera itself, but also how it has acted in the world and, and its sort of subsequent history in performance. Um, and it keeps changing, you know, each time Parsifal is performed, I think something new emerges. Um, it is, for me, the most mysterious and perhaps the most fascinating of, of Wagner's operas, uh, because I think no one has ever really plausibly claimed to have figured out you know, what is actually happening in Parsifal. And I'm not sure that Wagner himself uh, entirely understood what, what he was unleashing in this work. Uh, and it is sort of very much an emblem of the late Wagner, an exceedingly murky being uh, who in his uh, late writings, the so-called regeneration writings, is giving us uh, some of the most noxious and most unbearably racist and uh, otherwise troubling uh, statements of his career alongside sentiments which seem to point in a very different direction, whether toward a kind of proto-environmentalist thinking, strains of a sort of renewed socialism or, or, or pacifism, turning against the newly founded German Reich in many ways and its militarism. So yeah, and I think Parsifal sort of embodies uh, all of these contradictions, as well as I think the musical language of the late Wagner and its mysteries, uh, its its mystical aura, its shadows. So yeah, I just never tire of revisiting uh, Parsifal, even if it sometimes gives me the chills. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I think in terms of this, the idea of sort of sexuality in Parsifal and in Wagner generally is, is, a, is a really, really endlessly interesting topic. Anya has talked about the, the female in Parsifal and the character of Kundri, uh, who is a source of, of trouble. And she represents kind of all of the, all of the trouble that the idea of woman uh, brings to this would-be chaste, pure brotherhood. Um, and she must be eliminated. And I think, you know, with that, her oriental uh, uh, nature, her, her Jewishness, you know, the, the femaleness, sort of all of this needs to be eliminated uh, from the order for it to be healed. But then the question is, well, what are we left with? What kind of world are we living in, in this supposedly chaste, pure, all-male Brotherhood, you know, what kind of world is this? How, how could it? How is it going to perpetuate itself? Um, and and then it sort of gets into the question. I think of of what such a brotherhood symbolizes um, in the late nineteenth century, and you know what kind of masculinity is on display here. And and I think the character Parsifal is quite different from from some previous Wagner heroes. Thinking of uh, Siegfried, uh, obviously Siegfried or, or Sigmund, uh, or even Walter in, 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 in Meistersinger. Um, uh, he is not a rugged, uh, aggressive, uh, uh, sort of self-confident, swaggering kind of, kind of male archetype. Maybe he is at the very beginning when he's a sort of wild boy. Uh, but his path uh, of evolution is toward gentleness and toward uh, compassion and a kind of purity, which, which begins to seem almost androgynous. It's like interesting to look at some of the representations of Parsifal in the late 19th century. Uh, and he's often 
depicted as, as a rather lean, uh, sort of uh, almost waifish uh, figure, and sort of not at all this kind of you know, muscular hero. And that's in line with, I think, what Wagner had in mind. You know, there was a kind of interest in the idea of androgyny throughout Wagner's life. And there was something fundamentally ambiguous, I think, about his own gender identity. Uh, you know, on the one hand, he projected himself as, as a kind of stern visaged uh, uh, sort of ideal of a masculine German uh, artist with this sort of heavy the sort of pseudo-Renaissance kind of uh, uh, pseudo-Hans-Zach's appearance. Uh, but at the same time, of course, he he secretly cultivated uh, a certain degree of femininity, or at least a kind of fetishizing of female garments, uh, these famous uh, collecting of, of silks, uh, uh, silken garments that he draped around himself, um, all of which was actually, he, he wished it to remain secret, but it was actually exposed in 1877 in the, in the Viennese press uh, and caused him enormous uh, embarrassment. You know, his his love for soft garments and, and, uh, and sort of uh, feminine uh, uh, fragrances. And, and so this was exposed and it became part of his public persona, you know, against his own will. Um, he was heavily mocked, of course. This was seen as a kind of Achilles heel for this, uh, you know, great German uh, heroic figure. But at the same time, there are people who found this, who found this attractive, you know, this ambiguity um, in, in Wagner. And we find Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, the great uh, pioneer of, of German gay rights, gay rights around the world, saying, no, we, we shouldn't mock Wagner for this. Is, this is actually wonderful that, that, he, that he sort of contains this kind of ambiguity. And it gets into this trend uh, for gay figures of the fin de siècle to identify Wagner as a friendly figure, perhaps even one of them. The love letters, uh, the, the, the correspondence between um, uh, King Ludwig and, and Wagner were interpreted as uh, love letters uh, in some cases, uh, I think, Incorrectly, I mean, there, there was there, there was no sexual relationship between the two men, but there was a romantic atmosphere, and this was seen as a sort of clue to, to some kind of secret relationship. So, in, in all kinds of ways, I think uh, Wagner became a uh, heroic figure for a nascent gay identity um, at the turn of the century. And so, therefore, this long kind of uh, detour, getting back to the main point, this this all male brotherhood becomes not a kind of colossus of traditional uh, masculinity, but an image of, of a gay community, you know, uh, not what Wagner had in mind, uh, certainly, uh, but, but it was interpreted as such, uh, picking up on certain clues that Wagner left behind. And, you know, Wagner's attitudes toward, toward homosexuality, I think, especially male uh, homosexuality, uh, were progressive for his time. You know, there's a remarkable utterance uh, that is uh, recorded in Cosmo Wagner diaries. Uh, they, they, they had good sort of uh, gay people in their uh, uh, circle, including Paul von Yukowski, uh, who was the, the designer for the first uh, production of Parsifal, and he would bring his uh, Italian boyfriend around, and Cosimo was, was mocking this relationship and saying it was silly. And Wagner replied, um, it is something for which I have understanding 
but no inclination. You know, he didn't say this publicly, but even in private, I think this was this was a, a notable uh, point of view. And, and Bayreuth became known as a place where gay people, lesbians as well as gay men, could feel more comfortable, uh, could express themselves more openly. I think Cosima Wagner consciously or unconsciously uh, uh, cultivated uh, such an atmosphere. And of course her son Siegfried was gay uh, as well. So, so you know, Parsifal is, is uh, so complicated and it sort of encompasses uh, all of these um, energies within itself, uh, which we see now either as progressive and also as reactionary and retrograde and really depends on who is listening to Parsifal, uh, who is uh, responding to it. Um, I, mean, I found in your book um, that whole area that you've just been pointing to, the way that there was a, a fascinating aspect you write about the, the influences on some some literary figures and echoes and resonances, whether it's with Oscar Wilde or with, with Thomas Mann and the like, um, and it's really, really fascinating. Anya, one thing I'd, I'd be interested to take your view on, um, we were talking at, at the outset, I'm a severely lapsed Catholic, but um, reading the, the libretto again, the text, and, and, and watching it recently, it did kind of appeal to some of those Catholic sensibilities that, that I was uh, exposed to earlier in my life. And um, I was kind of very intrigued by the whole notion of the mother figure in the opera. I mean, very briefly, Parsifal doesn't yeah. know the mother. The whole seduction scene in Act Two revolves around Kundry spilling the beans, as it were, giving him his prehistory, giving him his name. And the kiss is a mother's kiss, I think it's re referred to. And struck me, not least, that there was potentially some Freudian elements in there as well. But I, I wonder if you care to just elaborate a little bit on that for us. The mother figure is very important. Undoubtedly, Herzeleide is, is hovering there in the background and and is somehow the means by which Kundry thinks she's going to seduce Parsifal. And there, there is an interesting line that Kundry says in this seduction. She says, Perhaps you were afraid of your mother's kisses. So there's a sense in which Parsifal and his mother may have been too close or she suggests that you know maybe maybe Herzleider was too fixated upon Parsifal and Parsifal had to individuate had to separate from her had to grow up had to almost kill her off so it's not quite Oedipal it's kind of the reverse he he kills his mother <laughs> um, but at the same time he reveres her when he thinks back so so there is a sense in which the mother figure is is both something that has to perhaps be overcome so that he can find himself as an adult, but something that he carries with him and and it's the pain, I think. So that pain of understanding that she's dead prefigures this kind of understanding that of the pain that Amfortis is going through. I don't know if I connect it with, say, the mother of God or it hadn't struck me in particular that that was the most Catholic element of the piece, but but you're right. Of course, the the mother figure is very central to Catholicism, and and this piece is undoubtedly very much tinged by um, Catholic imagery and and an insistence on on the idea of 
not just consecration, but transubstantiation and and blood, you know, and blood is something that comes up a lot in Catholic imagery and and you know, we, we, we hear about it in hymns and and those hymns are still there. I, I feel like it's it's an interesting kind of amalgamation of earlier themes from Wagner operas. So so we, we have lots of themes from Tristan, the suffering, the wound and we have themes from the ring. Undoubtedly, we have this, this Siegfried-type element going on. And these are kind of heightened and made all the more melodramatic through this kind of Catholic imagery. And another thing that fascinates me about it is that it's almost as if we could take some elements from Wagner's Meistersinger and trace those through to to Parsifal. And by that, I mean that, you know, if we think about the Protestant um, kind of world of the Meistersinger and the kind of quite domestic world and middle class uh, Reformation world of the Meistersinger, there are elements that pop up again in Parsifal. Indeed, there's a musical moment at the end of Act One of Parsifal, which is taken, I think, directly from Walter's prize song in the Meistersinger, which, remember, is about Eva in Paradise, the character Eve in Paradise. And there's a little musical phrase that come, pops back in towards the end of Act One of Parsifal. So by the time it's reached C major, we just get this kind of glimpse of the Meistersinger. And this leads me to think about this kind of interesting connection where you have this figure of Parsifal, which you could, you can compare with Walter. And, and Alex, I know you said earlier, he's quite different to Walter and he is, he's undoubtedly different, but he has a, somehow he has a similar job to do, which is to say he needs to renew this culture that has become morbid and is in decline and is in degeneration. So along comes Parsifal or Walter, encounters this brotherhood that he's not part of yet and has to go through a ritual, has to learn something, but also has to renew this brotherhood. You know, again, here we're back to to the idea of Germany and the idea of German nationalism and the idea of Wagner's ideas and the ideas of his time about what German ideals should involve. And they were undoubtedly the ideals of, of pure masculinity and the idea that there was a degeneration out there that had to be overcome and therefore you needed somebody who was going to come along who was going to inject some vigor into something that had degenerated and so you needed an outsider but the outsider had to go through a ritual and be absorbed by this community and provide the impetus for the renewal and provide the sort of invigoration would provide the vigor that would renew this this community so Sorry, we've ended up a long way from the idea of the mother, but um, I, I think there are all sorts of interesting things going on there. And what Alex said at the end of um, what he was saying, I echo completely, which is to say that the piece is ambiguous enough that you can see what you want to see in it and you can find the elements or the listener or, or the viewer can, can find the elements that appeal to them in it and, and that speak to them. And you can approach this either wanting to be swept away or perhaps wanting to be a little bit horrified by the piece. But it's up to you, really, because there are so many footholds that you can decide to take or, or find within this piece. So um, 
apologies if that was a little bit convoluted, but um, it's sort of definitely the Catholicism is a very interesting element. And you could say it's very different to the Protestantism of the Meistersinger, but actually there are some similarities there. I think it, it was it was really interesting what's just been said about how there are you know, multiple readings that Barnes' work can generate and has done also at different ages uh, and different times. This is mentioned in quite a lot of the scholarship. You know, the fact that he deploys myths, there's great mythic qualities, certainly to the, the mature works, which does Im- invite those different readings. There's also, if you think of Parsifal, various tropes that we refer to, religious ones, and it's often regarded as his most religious play and associated with Good Friday, all, all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking of other readings that um, spring to mind. And uh, Alex, in your book, I think I'm right in saying you refer to it as spooky. You talk about the, the demonic, you know, the pagan, precisely not Christian, and perhaps you'd, you'd like to run with that, with, with that a little bit for us and, and share your thoughts. Yes, absolutely. I think this this question of the religious and the spiritual in Parsifal uh, links up, I think, uh, very easily with what we've been talking about previously uh, in terms of, of gender and sexuality, because Wagner was really trying, to some extent, to create a new religious ritual, uh, a kind of synthetic religious ritual in this work. Syncretic uh, is is the apt word. Uh, Combining, I think, uh, Christian traditions, the the Catholic uh, and uh, the Protestant, but I think especially the the Catholic is to the the forefront here, uh, with aspects of pagan uh, myth, which of course had been the the heart of his ring project, um, and had also been touched upon uh, in Lohen Green and, and Tannhäuser. And I think Eastern religious uh, traditions, and, and this was a very keen interest of, of Wagner's uh, sort of through Schopenhauer, uh, through other sources, uh, not particularly detailed or accurate uh, knowledge of, of Eastern spiritual traditions, but nonetheless a, uh, a fascination, hints, more than hints, I think, of, of Buddhism and uh, Hinduism. And, you know, I think sort of this other world, which was very strong at the end of the 19th century, uh, alternative spiritual uh, traditions, uh, occultism, mysticism, uh, theosophy, Rosicrucianism, this, this idea of a sort of secret society, a sort of a secret sort of religious society uh, into which one could be initiated. Uh, and as Anya was saying, I mean, a Parsifal is above all a story of initiation, uh, this, this strange, wild young man under goes this training uh, at the hands of Gurnemans, uh, the wise uh, elder, and emerges as the new leader uh, at the end. We've seen this story over and over again, you know, going back into the sort of distant mists of myth, as well as just so many movies and, and sort of TV shows that, that, you, that you see today. It's the story of Star Wars, uh, Luke Skywalker and, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and The, the Matrix, uh, which actually is a, a film that seems to 
to contain uh, conscious references to Parsifal as well as to, to Schopenhauer and on and on. Yeah, so it's a very familiar tale. Uh, but yeah, at the, at the end of the 19th century, uh, this idea that one could find a, a new uh, sort of reinvigorated religious or spiritual tradition that would be free of the, of the heavy baggage of, of the extant religious uh, traditions. You know, Wagner was, was really driving toward this uh, himself and, and he created a kind of shrine. Uh, he created a, a cult at Bayreuth and pilgrims would travel from the world over to be initiated themselves you know, uh, into uh, Parsifal. Uh, and I think it sort of connects with the sexuality question because for gay men and lesbians, uh, the trip to Bayreuth could be a kind of uh, initiation of their own, uh, sort of a, a place where, where their secret society could be recognized. Um, uh, as well as you mentioned the demonic and uh, the satanic and, and, and Parsifal was, was attractive to writers like the, the, like the amazingly bizarre uh, French novelist Josephine Pelledon as a site of occult uh, ritual and, and even a kind of, you know, as a, a, a satanic presence coming into view, uh, even if it is a presence that, that must eventually be uh, uh, defeated. So sort of all of this is just kind of scrambled together in this work over which, as I said earlier, I think Wagner himself did not have full control. Uh, he did not know quite what he was uh, uh, creating in this work and its subsequent history, I think, shows just how just how complicated and, and contradicted that creation was. But, um, and, you know, and, and we see in contemporary personal productions, uh, this uh, uh, you know, number of productions that sort of give us a kind of post-apocalyptic uh, landscape where uh, some kind of brotherhood is, is trying to assemble itself in, in, in the midst of ruin and, and uh, uh, devastation. And so today as well, I think uh, we, we have this search for uh, a new spiritual ground. Um, but, you know, inventing a new religion is dangerous. <laughs> and I think uh, the, the cultish aspect of, of Parsifal is also one of its more ominous and, and menacing uh, aspects. Just um, listening to the I was, I was just wondering... You mentioned, you know, the association with Easter, with the passion, passion of Christ, with passion plays. You mentioned Bayreuth, the pilgrimage, you know, the, the, the stage consecrating festival drama, as it sometimes translated the Bühnenweifespiel. This is in Catholic Bavaria, which is home to passion plays and has been for centuries, um, thinking over Amagao, these kind of things. And I'm just, just wondering, listening to you know, the fact that they, it could be read with various kind of anti-Christian or non-Christian elements, and with the annual pilgrimage of the festival involved and going to the Green Hill, whether this might be seen within, within religious circles as a, as a provocation, or was it over people's heads? It was. No, I think there, there were people who thought that there was something sacrilegious about, about Parsifal. That question was raised when Parsifal was first done in America, in New York at the end of 1903. There were voices raised uh, saying that this was, this was a, uh, a distortion of Christianity. Those voices were, were, never, were never particularly strong, I think never really stood in the way of the opera being performed, but, but there was that unease. Um, but there were also many, many uh, sort of Christian uh, interpreters uh, who embraced the work and I think who sort of rather deliberately ignored these other spiritual threads of the composition and, and really focused on, on, the, on the Christian element to, to the exclusion of all else and just 
saw it as a, as a kind of a handy, modern, new sort of vessel for Christian ideas. And so sort of all these, all these pilgrimages, you know, very often were, were done in that spirit, uh, the, the opera being seen as a sort of uh, harmless uh, site of Christian elevation. I mean, one thing that I noticed that was fascinating to me, looking at hotel guest lists at the Bayreuth Festival, I, I went to the Bayreuth Archive, and they had uh, sort of these sort of yearly publications uh, that sort of said, you know, who was staying at all of the area hotels. And I noticed that large groups of especially American, young American women, were being sent to Bayreuth from all over the country, uh, from, from Georgia, Alabama, and other states. Uh, usually there would be an adult chaperone or, or, or someone's uh, father or mother. And so, so the idea was, you know, we're going to send our daughters from our town to, to Bayreuth to undergo the Christian improvement of Parsifal, which strikes me as a very questionable idea in a lot of ways uh, because of the complexity and the, and the strangeness of the piece. But, uh, but it, it seemed to perform that, that function without, without much controversy. As has already been said, I mean, it's a, a discussion that's um, endlessly fascinating, could be endless. And um, I'd, I'd like us to, to round things up, if I may, with a kind of daft thought experiment. So I, I want you to imagine we've, we've wrapped everything up now. And I'm drinking drinking a sip of tea, and I'm thanking you for a great conversation. And I'm going to ask you each in turn: Is there anything in relation to this topic or anything else, Wagnerian, that um, you might like to have said but didn't get the the opportunity? And if I could put that to to Anya first, please. I mean, I suppose we didn't talk that much about the music, did we? And we we didn't talk about the way uh, that chromaticism is is um, contrasted with diatonicism. And in some sense, it's almost banal, isn't it, to remark that the chromatic is for the kind of the the slightly um, problematic uh, view of the female and 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 the exotic and the other and diatonic is there for the brotherhood and the grail and 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 this is what prevails at the end of course it's more complicated so as we've said the whole way through it is a very complex work so so clearly you don't just get chromaticism one moment and diatonicism the next moment and they're always related but there is a broad contrast there which is is worth noting i think yeah, I would very much agree. I mean, uh, we, we didn't touch on the music and, and there are all kinds of points, I think, at which, you know, all of these topics that we've been uh, touching upon are present in the music or, or can be sensed uh, in the music, uh, the feminine versus the masculine, alternative sexualities, uh, alternative spiritual traditions. This work, like so much of Wagner, begins and ends with a sort of seemingly stable even static tonal frame. But within that frame, we have sort of other energies bubbling up to the point where the, the structure really seems to crack, you know. And I think what's interesting in contrast to Tristan and Isolde, uh, where we have tonal ambiguity right from the outset. It's going to be the topic of the work, in a sense, announced in the first bars, this hovering chord, which doesn't resolve. I think Parsifal, the, the, the wonderful prelude, gives us this, this uh, shimmering, uh, otherworldly vision. But then the cracks in the marble, in a sense, uh, are all the more shocking uh, when, when they happen, sort of given that sort of beatific opening. The moment in the work that just 
seizes me more than any other is the Grail procession in Act Three, which is so disturbing and so ominous. And so this is the vision of the dead dying grail community but it's enormously powerful music to the extent that it almost overwhelms overpowers the previous much kind of uh, grander and more uh, light suffused uh, procession of act one so i think to listen to what happens in that procession uh, sort of tonally oriented music which which cracks these piercing violent dissonances and and what does that represent the strongest, most aggressive music in, in the entire work in some senses, but it is the music of collapse. It is the music of, of deterioration and, and even a kind of demonic energy. And I think the problem that Parsifal presents uh, is that the final resolution, for me at least, is less satisfying. Uh, you know, Parsifal's final triumph and the music that goes with it is, is, is less interesting, less compelling than the music of crisis and sexual temptation and you know, everything else that, that has come you know, along the way. And so uh, I think we, we, we sense these contradictions uh, in the music itself as well. Uh, and that's interesting because you could say the same of uh, the Zauberflöte, that the music associated with Queen of the Night is that bit more dramatic, that bit more interesting. And the music associated with Sarastro and the Brotherhood there is also just less interesting, I think. But I, I agree, I agree absolutely. Uh, instrumentation is another really important part of what Wagner does to characterize these figures. So for instance, Eva Rieger notes that Klingsor is never heard with the brass because the brass signifies masculinity and Klingsor is a, he, he's, he's emasculated, so he's not, he doesn't appear with the brass. And then you've got the idea of rising lines and descending lines, and, and these are quite symbolic as well, I think. Yeah, and you could talk about a kind of instrumental androgyny, perhaps, uh, in terms of the, the blending of timbres, uh, which is so pronounced in this work, where you just often aren't quite sure of what instrument uh, you're hearing, uh, the, the oboe and the trumpet uh, sounding together at the beginning, creating this sort of new super instrument of a, of a certain kind. And so this, this androgynous ideal toward which Wagner was at least kind of purportedly uh, striving, according to some of his uh, utterances, uh, is perhaps present um, in the instrumentation where you're sort of in the presence of a voice whose nature, whose gender sort of is perhaps uh, uncertain. And again, we have the problem at the end with sort of the blaring major key uh, resolution, a sense that perhaps uh, Wagner has lost uh, that that kind of androgynous uh, mystery mm. that, that hovers in so many sort of earlier pages of, of the score. And that's a kind of insoluble problem. Yeah. The opera has to end some way. It says the moment, especially Kundry, is gone. The tension of the work is gone. It's almost with, with, with Kundry gone. It's like an oratorio, really. There's just no, there's no narrative drive there at all, isn't it? It's kind of. Um, I'd be interested just to hear um, 
from from yourselves the musicologists um a little bit more about the instrumentation i speak because listening to it um time and time again actually uh, of late it, it strikes me that there's something really fascinating going on where it's almost like sounds are being synthesized <laughs> i'm thinking in particular like the, a grand church organ and when i when i was listening to it i i was i was envisaging all the stops on an organ that are somehow kind of combining to make this particular sound i mean i don't know whether that's off the wall and um, an erroneous kind of um, thought to have. But uh, Alex, um, in respect of, of innovations and in instrumentation, I was just wondering if you could say a few few more words about that, please. Yeah, well, I think, you know, just Wagner's command of the orchestra is just absolutely at, at its height in this work. And the orchestration of Parsifal was, was so influential. Debussy, uh, who was um, really deeply troubled uh, or annoyed perhaps by Wagner um, in so many ways was was profoundly influenced uh, by the orchestration of, of, of Parsifal. It's diaphanous quality, it's it's transparency, it's it's the, the lightness of, of so much of this music. It's, it's in so many places it's not a heavy uh, overbearing score. I think in terms of innovation, something else that comes to mind is the, the question of the bells in this work. Wagner really struggled with, with what kind of sound, uh, what kind of instrument would, 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 would produce these bell notes, which are just so important sort of throughout the opera, uh, uh, C, G, A, E. And uh, early on, he spoke of Chinese bells. It's very unclear what he might have had in mind by that, uh, but but he, he he might have wanted something uh, lighter, sort of higher in tone, sort of more otherworldly. Uh, of course, in the end, now Parsifal, we so often hear something sort of heavier, grander, sort of more in the tradition of, of sort of Western cathedral bells. Uh, but he he worked on this problem quite a bit. Um, a sort of special instrument was constructed a kind of uh, stripped down piano where the four notes were strung in, in sort of uh, multiple strings and then struck. And sort of over the years in Bayreuth, various versions of this instrument were uh, devised. Um, and I don't think he ever quite found the solution. It's always kind of a, a challenge. I think every time Parsifal is performed, you know, how exactly should these bells uh, sound? And it's so important because, you know, I spoke of the, of the Grail procession in Act Three. Now in Act One, the notes sound on the bells and the and the orchestra is sort of completely configured uh, around those uh, four notes, kind of in, in, in harmony with those uh, four notes. It's a vision of a harmonious uh, order with the bells at the center. Act three, it's very different. And actually the bells are, are clashing harmonically with the music going on in the orchestra and accentuating the dissonances. Uh, 
that's a remarkable effect where where sort of the, the bells, the symbol of religious order and and stability are actually creating uh, dissonances in conjunction with the orchestra. So that's that's a fascinating effect. Each time the opera is performed, there is this uh, struggle to realize the subtleties and and, and the nuances uh, of this uh, orchestration, which is perhaps kind of symbolic in a way of, of our <laughs> ongoing struggle to to grapple with the work uh, itself uh, and to uh, uh, this impossible quest uh, to grasp whatever might be contained within it, which is Anya said earlier, is actually really a reflection of whatever we are <laughs> feeling and sort of uh, projecting onto it. And I suppose just to finish, I would say that it's the music that keeps this opera alive, because I think without that music, we wouldn't be going back to this text. We wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't have the interest that we have in this work. And and that's why I think the idea of a concert staging is actually quite fascinating. And, it, and the idea of putting the music front and centre, having the musicians on stage, or there is something that's quite apt about that, because I really do think it's the score that keeps this work alive. Yeah, and we recall the fact that the famous break between Nietzsche and Wagner had a great deal to do with Parsifal and with the Parsifal text. And uh, when Nietzsche read the text, uh, he was in many ways disgusted and just found it sort of really lacking the, the kind of honed quality that the sort of earlier Wagner texts had had, had the ring especially, um, and the sort of the Christian apparatus was sort of repulsive uh, to him. But then when he heard the score, he changed his mind. Just when he heard the prelude, you know, he realized, aha, <laughs> you know, uh, of course, this was too late, the friendship was broken, and they were no longer speaking. But he realized that the musical dimension of, of Parsifal was transforming this text, which looked so uh, unpromising uh, to him on the page. And certainly the idea of, you know, listening to, you know, attending a, a dramatic recitation of the Parsifal text <laughs> would be <laughs> a sort of unappealing prospect. Although, as we said, when Wagner recited the text, uh, he went to London in 1877 and, and he gave a recitation to the text and none other than George Eliot reported that this was just a riveting experience. And so Wagner himself, uh, when he delivered these texts, you know, he was, he was a, a very accomplished actor, actually, or a very kind of uh, mesmerizing uh, actor. And so he could invest these texts with an energy which would then be uh, uh, reflected in the music that he composed for them. Well, I think given that Wagner is a composer who is often approached through his politics or through ideology or, or whatever, it's really great to finish our conversation today on the music and to be reminded of the fantastic quality of the music and what gives Wagner longevity, why, why this reason why performances are sold out. And I have to say that the prelude has one of the most amazing hooks in musical history. So much so that it's still kind of going around my head every time I, I think about it. It's absolutely fantastic, fantastic hook. Well, thank you ever so much. But I hope you've enjoyed that as much as I have. We're really, really grateful for you for, for giving so generously of your time. Absolutely fantastic. And take care, everyone. It's been thank super you. wonderful. Thank you all. Thank you. been listening to Thinking with Opera, produced by the DARE partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds.